the title, What's Eating Jonah? <laughs> I like that. Uh, and I absolutely love the story of Jonah, partly because of, all, and we're doing the minor prophets in Sunday, on Sunday evening. Jonah is the most human of all of the minor, Old Testament minor prophets. He is one of the most flawed but relatable characters in Old Testament history. He had a really bad attitude that's frankly easy for me to identify with, and yet he was used by God in a remarkable way. He was a reluctant missionary. You know, he was sent to a hostile culture, but then he was used by God to bring an entire city of pagan Gentiles, wicked Gentiles, to bring them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and Nineveh was was transformed by this. You know, Nineveh was one of the most debauched cities ever. We'll talk about it. This was the largest and most populated city of the Assyrian Empire. And Assyria was this culture of warfare and brutality. And in Jonah's time, the Assyrians were an imminent threat to the very existence of Israel. Jonah didn't want to go there. He had no interest in ministering to those people, and from a purely human perspective, it's pretty understandable. But God sent Jonah to deliver a prophecy of destruction to the Ninevites, and Jonah tried hard to avoid even that duty. He didn't want them to have a warning. I think he would have preferred to see Nineveh destroyed with no warning. And, you know, practically everyone knows this part of the story. He was swallowed by a huge fish and the fish was the vehicle that God used to bring him back and set him in the right direction. And when Jonah finally did take the prophecy to the city of Nineveh, the people repented. The entire city repented. They genuinely repented in dust and ashes. One of the most remarkable accounts in the Old Testament, Scripture says the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. That's Jonah chapter 3, and even their king, look at Jonah 3, verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his mantle from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. You kind of wish that would happen in our culture today, frankly. But then all of Jonah 3 is a description of the greatest and most surprising revival in the history of redemption. Thousands were swept into the kingdom, and it turned out that this was God's real plan all along, to save all of those people. And it's a terrific picture of Christian missions and, and how God concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. That's Acts chapter 15, verse 14. That is God's purpose, to redeem a people for his name. And furthermore, the conversion of this wicked city, Nineveh, is a wonderful Old Testament window into God's long-term redemptive plan. Specifically, this is an early example of how God is fulfilling the central promise of the Abrahamic covenant. This is how, Genesis twenty-two eighteen, in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed which sounds glorious, right? But here's the problem. That is not the end of the story. While the revival is wonderful, and and again, make no mistake, this was a true revival. These people were truly converted, and, and we know they'll be in heaven because Jesus himself said so. Matthew 12, 41. Jesus told the those stubborn unbelievers in the city of Capernaum, 
the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and they will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So Jesus tells us these Ninevites are going to be in heaven and and this entire generation of Ninevites was thereby spared from threatened destruction. God didn't actually destroy the city of Nineveh until more than 100 years later. That's described in the book of Nahum, if you want to read about it. But after this penitent generation, their great-grandchildren, I suppose, returned to their ancestors' barbarous style of paganism. Again, you can read about that in, in Nahum. And I think there's probably a sermon in the Grace Life Archives from Nahum's account of the destruction of Nineveh, but the Ninevites of Jonah's generation were truly and soundly converted, and and the threat of judgment was instantly and totally averted. But Jonah's story doesn't end on a positive note. It ends with a temper tantrum. Jonah himself was angry that God spared the Ninevites. He frankly didn't have the, the heart of a decent missionary, and therefore... Jonah stands as a kind of negative example to us, and that's the part of the story I want to talk about with you this morning. So turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. This is, of course, the least familiar part of this amazing story. This is the chapter they don't cover in Sunday school, even though practically every Sunday school child in the, in the history of the world, every Sunday school teacher in the history of Sunday schools loves to teach about Jonah, and they nearly always leave this last chapter out. In fact, maybe you even think of Jonah as a kid's story. I, I once did a search for artwork featuring Jonah, and it was hard to find anything that wasn't the sort of cartoonish coloring book style art. Jonah himself is kind of a cartoon in the minds of many evangelicals, I think. But the book of Jonah is full of some serious grown-up lessons, and, and this last chapter especially is loaded with lessons for cranky old people (laughs) like me. And the irony here is thick. You know, while the pagan people of Nineveh are repentant and they're sorrowful for their sin, Jonah's own response to this revival was sinful resentment and his sour, pouting attitude matched the, the level of passion that you see in the Ninevites' expressions of repentance He's the bad guy in the end. It's just like, that's why I had him read this morning the parable of the prodigal son. He's like the older brother. He resents it. Now, as I said, if you are familiar with Jonah only from the stories you heard about him in children's Sunday school or or the picture books that your mom may have read to you when you were a child, the chances are you've never heard this part of Jonah because, frankly, this chapter is not easy to talk about or make sense of And that's especially true when you're teaching Sunday school to little kids. But here this is in Scripture, and and so we're going to immerse ourselves in it for the next 45 minutes or so. Now, the book of Jonah is unique among the Old Testament prophetic books because it is almost entirely narrative. We covered this in Sunday evening service few months, actually maybe just a few weeks ago. I think it was Mark Zakovich that, or no, his brother Joe Zakovich covered this. He covered the whole book of Jonah, including this chapter, in a single message. I want to look a little more intently at this, but one of the things Joe pointed out that's true is that if you read the Old Testament prophetic books, 
This is the only one that's practically pure narrative with virtually no actual prophecy. He's listed among the Old Testament prophets, but he doesn't record more than one sentence full of prophecy. So it's a story about the prophet. It's not just a verbatim record of his prophecy. But as a narrative even, it's frankly unsatisfying because it ends on a sour note, not a satisfying ending. In fact, if I were writing Jonah's story as a novel, I would have ended with chapter three in this glorious revival in Nineveh. It makes, that would have made a far more upbeat ending. Here was the greatest revival in the history of the world, and most preachers would literally give their lives to be used by God to bring about a revival like that. You'd think that Jonah would be completely overjoyed because so many of his nation's bitterest enemies had turned to their God and embraced Yahweh as their own God. Also, this revival, frankly, should have deepened Jonah's own repentance because, you know, despite his attempt to flee from his duty, the way God had him swallowed by a fish and brought him back and used him as the instrument for preaching a message. And this message put the people of the world's most wicked city on their faces before God. Who would not want to see a revival like this? And Jonah had, and he knew this, that he had his own sins to repent from because he had started out this, this episode by disobeying God deliberately. Anybody with a true missionary's heart would be ecstatic to be used by God in a revival like this. And not only that, anyone who had sins of his own to repent from, watching a wicked city like this turn to God en masse, you'd think that would deepen his repentance. But the effect of this revival on Jonah was exactly the opposite. It drove him into a deep bitterness. And in chapter four, you see him in an even more shameful rebellion against God than his earlier attempt to flee and go the other way. And then Jonah's story ends very suddenly and, like I said, on a decidedly negative note. It's a, it turns out to be a tragic closing chapter to what could have been a glorious, triumphant account of the prophet's life and ministry. I look forward to meeting Jonah someday in heaven and talking to him about this. Because, like I said, I can relate to him. I've worked in publishing for 40 years, and and I'll be honest with you, this, it feels like bad literary form to end such a momentous story with such a disappointing ending. But this is real life. This is not a novel. And as usual, Scripture portrays men, even the heroes of the faith, are portrayed in Scripture in a totally honest light. And most of them, we know their sins. We know their failures because that's the way Scripture records it. And Scripture records it Honestly, even when that means a prophet who could have been legendary is reduced to a a whimpering, sniveling whiner throwing a tantrum. Again, I can relate to him, so I'm not trying to be condescending toward Jonah. I'm no better than he is. And in fact, one of the things you have to admire about Jonah is that he recorded this closing chapter in his book. I assume he's the one who wrote it. I mean, he's all alone at the end of this. So the truth is, we wouldn't know anything about this whole incident if Jonah hadn't either written it down or told it to someone who did. So Jonah deserves credit for his honesty in reporting how badly he behaved. He he is not pleased about the revival 
in Nineveh because he hated the Ninevites. And he frankly thought that, and he wanted to see God wipe them out without any kind of warning. And and now they repented and, and God relented. And so Jonah is angry. And so he throws this tantrum. And this is the focus of Jonah chapter four. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's short, only 11 verses long. Here, but I'm going to start with the closing verse of chapter 3, which says, Then God saw the Ninevites' works, that they turned from their evil way. So God relented concerning the evil which he had spoken he would bring upon them, and he did not bring it upon them. Now here's chapter 4. But this was a great evil to Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to Yahweh and said, Ah, oh, Yahweh, was not this my word to myself while I was still in my own land? Therefore, I went ahead to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning evil. So now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And Yahweh said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of the city, and there he made a booth for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So Yahweh God appointed a plant, and it came up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his miserable evil, and Jonah was extremely glad about the plant. Then it happened, as the sun rose up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun struck down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and asked with all his soul, to die. And he said, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then Yahweh said, you had pity on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came to be overnight and perished overnight. So should I not have pity on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals? And the book ends there. I told you it was unsatisfying. Now, let me say at the outset that the lessons conveyed in this chapter are vitally important, and this reveals to us a truth about the divine character that we need to take to heart and weigh very carefully and seriously. Psalm 50, verse 21, God rebukes all of humanity with these words. He says, you thought that I was just like you, so I will reprove you, which is to say, We're not supposed to think of God as if he were one of us. He is not like us, and it's sinful to think of God as if he were like us. It's a kind of idolatry. Really, it's the sin of remaking God in the image of man, which turns things upside down, obviously. But that is pretty much what's taking place in the mind of Jonah right here in this chapter. Jonah, who is in blind anger, he is telling God that God should be more like Jonah, you know? And so God lovingly corrects this wayward prophet in this chapter because he's acting as if he's more righteous than God. That's really what I think he thought, as if Jonah knew better than God what was the right thing to do in a given situation. And and I, I believe this chapter is put here for us as a, a warning beacon, because we all have 
the same sinful tendencies that caused Jonah to behave like this. So let's talk about why is he doing this? Why did Jonah hate the Ninevites? And that is really not hard to understand. These were the worst enemies of the people of God in the time of Jonah. They were terrorists. They had devolved into a, into a wicked, violent, contemptible culture. And the culture itself represented everything unrighteous. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Assyria was the rising power, a world power in the days of Jonah. And the Assyrians were Israel's most dreaded enemies at this moment. The Assyrian armies were ruthless killers. They were known for waging especially brutal military campaigns. They built pyramids out of the severed heads of their enemies. They they displayed the disemboweled carcasses of their enemies like trophies. They, They did this sort of thing for two reasons. One, they just seemed to love gore and violence. And two, they wanted to strike terror into the heart of their enemies. So, in fact, let me read from Graham Scroggie. He's a commentator that lived in the middle of the 20th century. He's describing Assyrian military strategies. This is how the Assyrian armies fought. Scroggie writes, These people ruled with hideous tyranny and violence from the Caucasus and the Caspian to the Persian Gulf and from beyond the Tigris to Asia Minor and Egypt, which is to say they covered most of the known world at that time, the Assyrian kings literally tormented the world. They flung away the bodies of soldiers like so much clay. They made pyramids of human heads. They sacrificed holocausts of the sons and daughters of their enemies. They burned cities. They filled populous lands with death and devastation. They reddened broad deserts with carnage of warriors. They scattered whole countries with the corpses of their defenders as with chaff. They impaled heaps of men on stakes and strewed the mountains and choked the rivers with dead bones. They cut off the hands of kings and nailed them on the walls, and they left their bodies to rot with bears and dogs on the entrance gates of the cities. They cut down warriors like weeds or smote them like wild beasts in the forests and covered pillars with the flayed skins of rival monarchs. And these things they did without sentiment or compunction. And the truth is, they took delight in that kind of merciless, murderous violence. And Nineveh was the capital city. This was the seat of this evil culture. And so, understandably, the Israelites hated Nineveh and everything the Assyrians stood for. And Jonah, uh, out of all of Israel, was by no means alone in his contempt for Nineveh. The military uh, policies of the Assyrians had this sort of built-in ruthlessness. Most, you know, most conquering armies will leave garrisons behind to sort of organize an occupation government in order to keep control of the regions that they've conquered. The Assyrians figured they could avoid all of that and they could keep their army together if they just carried out a campaign of wholesale slaughter in the first place. So they would go through an area and just kill everybody, just everybody, men, women, children, babies, everything. I visited the British Museum a few years ago with Tom Pennington, and we spent some time in the area that stores Assyrian antiquities. Both of us were interested in this, and and secular history has recovered a surprising amount of detail and, and 
artifacts from this era of Assyrian dominance. And one of the remarkable things that you will find mentioned in every secular account of the Assyrian Empire is the brutality of their, their military conquests. Assyrian kings delighted in making written records in stone, writing the record of, of accounts of battlefields strewn with the corpses of their victims. Their stones and their monuments depict the tortures that they used against their enemies. And like I said, some of these artifacts are on display to this day at the British Museum. And if you look at them, you can see that they've carved in in stones these little images that reflect the most inhumane kinds of brutality. In fact, uh, I picked up a, a guidebook from one of these. So here's a description of the pictures that you see on Assyrian war monuments This is written by an expert in Assyrian history, and he writes this, quote, The leading men of a conquered village were led forth, seized by the executioners, and subjected to various punishments, all of them filled to the brim with horror. Some of the victims were held down while one of the band of torturers inserts his hand into the victim's mouth, grips the tongue, and wrenches it out by the roots. In another spot, pegs are driven into the ground, and to these another victim's wrists are affixed with cords. His ankles are similarly made fast, and the man is stretched out, unable to move a muscle. The executioner then applies himself to his task, and beginning at the accustomed spot, the sharp knife makes its incision, and the skin is raised inch by inch until the man is literally flayed alive." The skins are then stretched out upon the city walls or otherwise disposed of in a way that would terrify the people and leave behind long-enduring impressions of Assyrian vengeance. For others, long poles are prepared. The sufferer, taken like all the rest from the leading men of the city, is laid down. The sharpened end of the pole is driven through the lower part of the chest. The pole is then raised, bearing the writhing victim aloft, It is planted in a hole, dug for it, and the man is left to die. That, by the way, was the beginning of the practice of crucifixion. Other empires in world history have conquered territory in order to expand their their influence and their empire. The Assyrians conquered just for the sheer joy of pillage and destruction, and they would reduce a conquered city to ashes. They left nothing behind. They would even cut down the trees in a city in order to ensure that no one would ever try to rebuild there. And every person in Israel was familiar with the thirst for destruction that the Assyrian armies had. As far back as Moses, God had prophesied that he would use the enemies of Israel as the rod of his judgment if the people of Israel were unfaithful to him. And in Israel, Israel in Jonah's day, was particularly unfaithful, so Jonah was probably aware that God would use the invading Assyrians to judge Israel. And so it went against every fiber of Jonah's moral constitution to travel to Nineveh and warn the Ninevites and the Assyrians that God was about to judge them. Jonah believed that his hatred of the Ninevites was a righteous hatred. You know, he made the same error as a lot of 21st century Christians who act as as if the people all around us who hold unbiblical worldviews are our enemies rather than seeing them as the mission field where we've been called to minister. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, 
Paul describes the spiritual warfare we're supposed to be engaged in, and he says it this way, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. And he's talking there about intellectual strongholds, bad ideas, wrong worldviews. That's what we attack, not the people themselves. And he says, we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. So he's saying, what we destroy, what we want to destroy are these ideological strongholds and we demolish arguments and lofty opinions We don't demolish people so that the goal of our spiritual warfare is the liberation of people who are in bondage to evil worldviews and wrong doctrines and bad ideas. Or to say it another way, our mission as believers is to proclaim the gospel message to people who are trapped inside all kinds of ideological strongholds and then make disciples of those people. But Jonah had no desire to make disciples of the Ninevites. It's kind of shameful to say, but he hated them. This is tempting to compare him to Westboro Baptist, you know, and the Fred Phelps clan, these people who advertise their hatred with posters in shameful public demonstrations. I hope you don't ever look at that and think that they might have a valid point. It's like what Jonah was doing here. The difference is Jonah was apparently teachable, And Jonah 4 is the record of how God mercifully and graciously and gently instructed him. And that fact is remarkable because Jonah himself was convinced that the justice of God and the wrath of God sort of ought to nullify God's mercy, particularly with regard to gross sinners like the Ninevites. Jonah had had fallen in love with the the idea of divine wrath and God's righteous retribution. And he had lost sight of the, the glory of God's tender mercy and saving grace so that he was prepared to see Nineveh destroyed, but he was not prepared to see those people saved. He would have rejoiced at their destruction, but he couldn't bring himself to celebrate their salvation. And this chapter is the record of how God addressed this horrible imbalance in Jonah's theology. Now, think, of, think this through with me in Jonah's story. Chapter one, Jonah's rebellion causes him to flee from the presence of the Lord. Here, he's even more rebellious, but this time he flies in the face of the Lord. In chapter one, God pursued him with discipline, and here, though his sin is worse, God graciously and patiently instructs him with a series of object lessons. You know, Jonah hated God's mercy toward the Ninevites, but the truth is no one in this story needed God's grace and mercy more than Jonah himself. And so the Lord gently instructs him here with a series of fascinating supernatural symbols that are designed to center his theological compass again. It's the features of this story, the miraculous elements of this, that show us what the lessons the Lord has in mind are. Jonah, it's hard not to like him. He didn't lack zeal. He had a strong sense of justice, but he had a lot to learn about God's compassion. And so God gives him this succession of three object lessons to aid his learning. And I want to look at each one of them in order. The first we'll call the lesson of the weed. The lesson of the weed. Let's try to understand Jonah's thinking at this point. Verse 
One says he was displeased and very angry, which is clearly an understatement. He is seething with resentment. Why? Well, for one thing, he had sustained a wound to his ego. He preached that God was going to destroy Nineveh, but now God was not going to destroy Nineveh. So that in this case, God's favor to the Ninevites looked and felt to Jonah as if this is some kind of disfavor coming from God aimed at him. And, and here's a warning signal that you ought to bear in mind, and this would be good for a lot of, a lot of our woke brothers to understand. When God's goodness to someone else begins to feel like an insult to you, you've got a serious spiritual problem. If you think someone else's privilege is somehow a sin against you, if you think the other guy needs to check his privilege, you're sinning. That's a form of covetousness. And it's a root of bitterness that will defile you and defile others as well. And you need to mortify that attitude because it's lawful for God to do what he will with his own. Jesus said that. Is your eye evil because God is good to someone else? Jonah had no right to be resentful of God's goodness to someone else, even someone whom he hated. But let's be honest, this is, this is a typical attitude of the sinful heart. We all struggle with this. We all know what this feeling is like. It's a typical manifestation of human pride. The, you know, the resentment of the workers who were hired early in the day when the people who didn't work so long got the same payment. But Jesus himself clearly condemns that kind of resentment. He says it's wicked. And it is a particularly stubborn brand of wickedness. You, you see that in Jonah. He firmly believes, even now, that his contempt for the Ninevites is righteous and necessary, and he justifies it by, you know, pointing out the extreme wickedness of the Assyrian nation. Remember, as, as pagans go, this was the very worst that, this is perhaps the veriest worst the, the very worst culture that has ever gained world dominance. Of all the, all the empires that ruled the world, this is, at least on the surface, one of the, if not the most wicked ever. So from a human perspective, it's easy to see why Jonah hated them. These were people who reveled in brutality and paganism and wickedness of every kind. You could say as a nation, the Assyrians were the chief of sinners, and so Jonah is convinced that his hatred for them is not only warranted, he wears it like it's a badge of righteousness. In his mind, you weren't righteous at all if you didn't hate the Ninevites. And so naturally, he believed God was obliged to hate them as well. And so the thought of divine mercy being extended to such openly evil people absolutely disgusted Jonah. He felt the Assyrians were not worthy of compassion because their sin was so grossly abominable. Now, it is true that sinners have no legitimate claim on God's mercy. None of us have a right to it. God's grace, by, by definition, is undeserved. We don't deserve it. None of us do. No one has any right to demand God's grace. But by the same token, no sinner who desires to benefit from divine grace has any right to begrudge the grace of God to another sinner. That's like the guy in Matthew 18 
who, you know, that parable, he was forgiven a massive debt, an unpayable debt. And then he went out and found someone who owed owed him a, a much smaller debt. And he grabbed that guy by the neck and demanded repayment in full, or he was going to throw him in prison. That's analogous to how Jonah is acting here. God had forgiven Jonah of the debt of his own sin. We saw that in the first two or three chapters. Jonah actually could have spent all of eternity paying for his original sin that he ran away from God. Just paying for that one sin would have taken him an eternity in fiery torment, and yet he would never be able to pay that debt in full. And God had forgiven him this unpayable debt. So how could Jonah then demand that God must show retributive justice to, for their earthly offenses to these Ninevites? He didn't have any right to act like this. And worse yet, notice that Jonah is now trying to justify his own sin, which is a sin that he had supposedly repented of and asked forgiveness and received forgiveness. Jonah 2, that entire chapter, is a prayer of repentance from Jonah that he prayed while he was in the belly of the fish. He had begged God for mercy. God had shown him mercy. But don't miss the significance of verse 2 here in chapter 4. He goes, ah, oh, Yahweh, was this not my word to myself while I was still in my own land? Therefore, I went ahead to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning evil. Jonah's saying, he's not saying, because I knew you'd forgive me for my sin. What Jonah means here is, yeah, you remember that sin I repented of? Well, I take it back, because I wasn't wrong after all. What you did with the Ninevites proves that I was right to begin with because I knew you were going to do this. I knew you would let them off the hook, and I didn't want to give them a warning. That's his point. Verse 2, I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning evil. Yeah, I, I know all about your mercy and your compassion, and I think it's wrong because you're giving that compassion to sinful people. How can God do that? But God has this object lesson to teach Jonah this lesson. Compassion is for sinners, not for saints. Luke 5, 31, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And so God chose this moment when Jonah himself is at his worst while he's sinning and angry and rebellious and pouting. And in that very moment, God shows him grace. Verse 3, Jonah says, why don't you just kill me? I'd rather die than live. And notice how gently the Lord appeals to him. It's not a rebuke. It's not an angry rebuke. It's not a a, a stern, harsh word. The Lord asks him a question. Verse 4, do you have good reason to be angry? Is it really good for you to pout like this? Do you really have a right or a good reason to throw this tantrum? It's the kind of tender plea that, you know, a mother would give to a, to a child whom she loves deeply, but the child is misbehaving, and that's what's happening here. But Jonah spurns this gentle reproof. According to verse 5, he went out from the city and sat east of the city, and there he made a booth for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So he sets up a little shelter for himself. That's the booth. In the King James and the ESV, that's the word. But this was a a little flimsy 
lean-to, probably made of twigs. You remember that the Israelites had a festival known as the Feast of Booths, where they would live for a few days every year in these shelters that were made out of twigs woven together. It was that kind of booth. This is not not shelter enough even to really shade him from the burning desert sun. And so he sets himself up in this little booth. It's like lattice work more than more than real shade. And he's there in the burning desert sun waiting to see what would become of the city, still hoping that God would wipe them out. He seems to have been harboring this vain hope that God might respond to his little tantrum and see that, well, maybe I should wipe these people out anyway. But here's where God teaches Jonah that mercy is for sinners, not saints. At the peak of Jonah's rage, while he sits there pouting in this sweltering booth, God causes a miracle to occur, a plant, some kind of gourd plant or a weed springs up and it grows at a supernatural rate, you know, sort of like Jack's beanstalk, just grows and at a fast enough pace to provide shade for Jonah while he sits there. Verse six, Yahweh appointed a plant and it came up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his misery. So God shows him compassion. This is the very kind of compassion that Jonah is so resentful of when he sees it given out to someone else. And yet when he's the recipient of the mercy, his heart is made glad. And the text tells us that explicitly at the end of verse six. Jonah was extremely glad about the plant. So despite his own unrighteousness, Jonah is exceedingly glad to receive a token of grace from the hand of God. So here's the point. Jonah thinks he's standing on this inviolable principle that God is supposed to hate the wicked and be wrathful against them. God is not supposed to be merciful to sinners, is he? But then Jonah's response to the shade that was provided by this weed proved that he didn't really think that principle was totally non-negotiable. In fact, He's perfectly happy for God to show grace to a sinner as long as he's the sinner who's receiving the mercy. That makes him happy. But God's not through with the object lessons. And in fact, this gets kind of funny here. Follow with me. That's the lesson of the weed. Compassion is for sinners, not for saints. Now God has a new lesson, and we'll call this one the lesson of the worm. Verse 7. But God appointed a worm at the breaking of dawn the next day, and it struck the plant, and it dried up. So here, God destroys the plant that was providing Jonah's shade. So does it look for a minute like God is being capricious? I mean, one day he appoints this weed to provide shade for Jonah and make him glad. The next day, the first thing in the morning, he appoints this worm to come and eat at the root of this plant so that it dies as quickly and miraculously as it had sprung up. Why did God do this? Well, he's teaching Jonah a very important lesson that compassion is for people, not things. Skip ahead for a minute to verse 11, where God himself points out to Jonah that the obvious irony in this situation, Jonah is angry at God for destroying this shady plant, and he's even angrier at God for not destroying the people of Nineveh. There's something about this that just exposes how pathetically sick 
an evil heart is. Jonah loved that weed, but he hated the people of Nineveh. He would have God destroy an entire city full of people, but he thought it was wrong of God to destroy a weed. And now he's angry again. Let me read verses 10 and 11 once more. Then Yahweh said, you had pity on the plant for which you did not work and you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. So should I not have pity on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Now, what's the Lord saying here? 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between right and left hand, those are children who are young enough too young to know something as basic as which hand you salute the flag with. Little kids, if the city had 120,000 children, then the total population of Nineveh had to be at least 600,000, maybe more than a million. It's a lot of people either way, and, and Jonah is hoping to see all of them destroyed by the wrath of God you know, I suppose by fire from heaven or something like this. What a hateful attitude. And God suggests that these little children, too young to grasp much truth, and even cattle, not rational creatures, but brute beasts, these would be more suitable objects for Jonah's pity than this inanimate object, a gourd plant that he hadn't even planted or cared for. Just a weed. I mean, Jonah... You are wasting all your pity on a weed for pity's sake. Aren't all those little kids and even a bunch of cows, isn't that, aren't they more fitting candidates for your sympathy? Compassion is for people, not for things. If you want to have pity, don't waste it on a weed. People, even sinful people, especially sinful people, are where we should focus our compassion. People, not things. Tell that to all the tree huggers out there, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously, this is, the, this is the basic error underlying so much of today's, you know, environmental concerns that somehow plants and trees are supposed to take priority over people. Jonah's refusal to have compassion for an entire city, especially while he's mourning for this pet plant, this is an incredibly sinful and selfish attitude. And so God appoints a third object lesson for Jonah. We'll call this one the lesson of the wind. Verse 8. Then it happened as the sun rose up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun struck down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. Now, here's something to note. There are four places in Jonah, in the book of Jonah, four times we are told God appointed something every time to teach Jonah a lesson. In chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. He appointed that fish. Here in verse 6, God appoints a weed. In verse 7, he appoints a worm. And now in verse 8, he appoints a scorching east wind. And I like this because it's just naturally alliterated. God appointed a whale, a weed, a worm, and a wind. I mean, that'll preach, right? And understand this, each of, those, each of those object lessons is a miraculous phenomena. It's not an act of nature. You know, you read some commentaries that talk about how rapidly gourd plants in that 
kind of climate might grow. Well, let me tell you, no weed grows as rapidly as this one grew, springing up in a single day in order to give shade to a full-grown man. And there's a supernatural element in the worm, which almost instantly killed this plant, and the wind, which came up violently out of nowhere. These are miracles, and we need to recognize them as miracles. Don't try to explain them as natural phenomena. And the wind here, it's like, I suppose, similar to those hot Santa Ana winds that we get every year, except that this was sudden and with an intensity that was supernatural. This is another object lesson for Jonah. And I suppose it blew away his little booth. So now he has no shade. And not only is the sun hot, so is this wind. Now, think this through. The lesson of the weed was that compassion is for sinners, not saints. The lesson of the worm is that compassion is for people, not things. Now comes this third lesson, the lesson of the wind, that compassion is for others, not self. In all this drama, the one person that Jonah actually felt sorry for was himself, which is ridiculous because nothing God was doing in Nineveh was the least bit hurtful to Jonah. Maybe it hurt his feelings, but it shouldn't have. He was not actually hurt by any of this, but he chose to become embittered. He dredged up these old attitudes that he had supposedly repented of, He nurses this angry demeanor towards God, and he justifies all of it in his own mind with this deluge of self-pity. This whole chapter is just dripping with Jonah's self-pity. Look at verse 3. He starts this out. Please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Really? (laughs) Seriously, Jonah? Let me tell you a little secret. Jonah didn't really want to die. He's just feeling sorry for himself. He's a drama queen here. (laughs) He's being melodramatic. He's acting like, you know, a three-year-old letting his emotions have control of his entire soul instead of letting his rational understanding of truth keep some restraint on all this misguided passion. He's living by mood swings, and that's always a bad thing to do. And his own emotions here are are jerking him from one extreme to another, and you can see it happen in these few verses. The minute God shows him any bit of favor by sending the weed to give him shade, he cheers up and he's glad. Maybe even entertain the thought that this little show of divine favor might be a sign that God is going to give him his way after all, you know? If that, and if that's what he's thinking, if his happiness reflected some degree of hope that, you know, maybe I'll get to witness the destruction of this city after all. Well, then that's just sick. But that's what seems to be going on here. This is why he set up his lawn chair in the first place and and had this little tailgate party for himself (laughs) under the shade, verse 5, to see what would happen to the city. It's a typical attitude of people who think the way Jonah is thinking here. They imagine that any token of divine favor is proof that God approves of them. And if God approves of me, they think, well, he surely despises my enemies, right? Don't ever think like that, by the way. And it's hard not to, but it is not necessarily the case that just because God loves you, he must hate everyone that you hate. He probably doesn't. But this little token of favor to Jonah signified 
the exact opposite intention on God's part. Scripture says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's Romans 2, verse 4, which is why it's perfectly appropriate for God to show grace to sinful people, whether the saints with Jonah's attitude like it or not. God's goodness is designed to provoke people to repentance. Jonah was happy with the plant, but when the weed died and the wind blew it away so that the burning sun now begins to to shine on Jonah's exposed head, he goes right back to the very same song of self-pity. The end of verse 8 echoes what he said at the beginning of the chapter. He became faint and asked, this time with all his soul, to die. And he said, death is better to me than life. What the wind does here is blow away his hypocritical exterior and expose him for what he really is, He's a selfish man, hypocritical, self-righteous, too smug, too contemptuous of others. When things went his way, he's happy. When providence seems to work against him, he just wallows in self-pity. It's a shameful way for a man of God to act. And let me tell you, as someone who spent hours in the counseling room listening to people moaning about how life is unfair, there is nothing uglier or more spiritually destructive than self-pity. Save that compassion for other people. Pity is no good when you try to use it on yourself. And Jonah's behavior here is shameful. In verse 9, God reiterates the tender plea of verse 4. Do you have good reason to be angry? Now verse 9, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Do you really think it's good for you to be angry with, with God for destroying a weed, a gourd plant that God gave you in the first place. You didn't do anything to get it. And Jonah's answer here is shockingly brash and reckless. Yes, he says, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. I have a right to be angry, and I'll be angry about this until the day I die. And in fact, I'm so angry, I think I'll die right now. Why don't you just kill me? That's the attitude that's conveyed in these words, and it is frightening. He's being totally selfish here, completely focused on himself as if he is the only person in the world, and therefore he's acting as if he's the only person deserving of divine compassion. I mean, he felt sorry for the plant. He felt sorry for himself, but he had not one ounce of compassion for the Ninevites. An incredibly wicked attitude. And notice how his theological imbalance has totally warped his perspective on everything. His pity is totally misdirected. He sits in his booth in the desert. Before him lays one of the largest and most important cities in the world, as wicked as it it was. And he's hoping against hope that God would somehow relent and wipe these people out, even though they repented. Because... Jonah had such a twisted sense of where compassion should go and what justice should do. And Jonah's account ends abruptly with the Lord's gentle rebuke. This is the close of the story. Like I said, it's like a movie with a bad ending. Now, we know from the sequel in the the book of Nahum that the Lord didn't destroy Nineveh until more than a century later. This entire generation who repented, they were spared And I always ask, what do you think became of Jonah? It doesn't say. It's possible, perhaps even likely, that 
he had a change of heart as he thought all this through and looked at himself and wrote his story down. Maybe he repented again of his rebellious attitudes because after all, either he wrote this or he told it to somebody else and he's not portraying himself in a very good light, which suggests to me that maybe his bitter heart is softened at least somewhat and so his focus turns away from himself towards others Maybe he learned the value of people over things and he learned to love sinners as well as the people of God and he records all of this as a lesson for us. Listen, the true missionary spirit is not merely zeal, but zeal tempered by love. This is the attitude Christ calls all of us to have. Matthew five forty four and 45, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Which Jesus is saying this, you want to be like God? Do good to your enemies. Show them love and true compassion. Focus your compassion, not merely on the people you love and respect, but on the unlovable as well because sinners need compassion more than saints do. And focus your compassion on people, not things. A person needs compassion more than any tree or plant. People are made in God's image, and they're fitting objects for our deepest concerns. Trees are not. Even whales and other animals are not worthy of the same level of dignity and brotherly love that we owe our neighbors. Our society's totally lost this perspective in this, in this age of save the trees and save the whales crusades. Just remember in this story, God beaches the whale and he saves the prophet. He kills the weed and he saves a city. That's the proper gospel perspective. And focus your compassion on others, not on yourself. Self-pity has no place in the heart of a Christian. And we all have the same tendencies as Jonah in our hearts. May the Lord teach us instead to cultivate the spirit of Christ who by his death reconciled us to God even while we were enemies. That's the gospel, Romans 5, 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more now, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unfathomable love that reached out and purchased our redemption. Even when we were enslaved to sin and at war with righteousness, And so may we glorify Christ as channels of that same love now that it's shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Forgive us for our own hardness of heart and for our petulant, complaining unbelief at times. We say with that man in Mark chapter 9, Lord, we do believe. Cure our unbelief for the eternal glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.